Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Ask Dr. Jessica podcast. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. On this podcast, you'll hear me talk about various issues surrounding children's health and their well-being. And my goal is to help you feel more confident, knowledgeable, and worry less as you move through your parenting journey. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Mel Hyman, a pediatric gastroenterologist about inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, which refers to two conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And while IBD is relatively uncommon, it does affect over 1% of the U.S. population. And so in this episode, not only does Dr. Hyman give an overview of IBD, he also explains the treatment options, of which there have been many exciting advancements. Dr. Hyman is the Director of Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease at UCSF, and I am so grateful he took the time to come on Ask Dr. Jessica. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody who listens and helps spread the word about this podcast. And if you have any ideas for future podcast topics, feel free to email me at AskDrJessicaMD at gmail.com. Dr. Hyman, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. My pleasure. So tell everybody, who, who are you? What, what is the job that you, that you do? Uh, I am a pediatric gastroenterologist. I've been uh, a professor at UCSF on faculty since, wow, since 1981. Um, and my specialty involves taking care of children who have inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, I've been focused on that probably for the last 20, 25 years. So the premise of this podcast, my, my goal here is to interview quality, quality doctors, quality educators, and give people good information to learn from and hopefully help them worry less. So I think what's so important about IBD is very often a kid will have diarrhea or they'll have stomach issues and they go to Google and IBD comes up. And there's a lot of worry all of a sudden. And I think while it's, of course, a real disease, I think it would be so helpful to hear from you. What is IBD? You know, what are the warning signs? When to worry? When to see a GI doctor? So first, why don't we start with an explanation of what is IBD? What is inflammatory bowel disease? How is it different from other digestive disorders? Yeah, so inflammatory bowel disease is, as the word says, it's an inflammatory condition of the, of the intestines. Um, and it's really broken down into two main diagnostic groups. One is ulcerative colitis, which only involves the colon. Um, and as the word says, it becomes ulcerated. The other main category is called Crohn's disease. As far as Crohn's disease, it can involve anywhere in the gastrointestinal tract from right up in the mouth, right down to your anus. Um, it can have skip areas, so there may be one area involved, then another area will be normal, and then uh, another area will be involved. Um, and it can range for and both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, uh, which I'll just say are inflammatory bowel diseases, can be <clears throat> very mild, uh, or they can be severe where uh, patients get sick um, and uh, need hospitalization for intensive care. Um, one of the uh, differential uh, areas that I always make sure people understand is there's a difference between IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, 
and IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome does not involve the same type of inflammation that inflammatory bowel disease does. <clears throat> and it's um, more of a nuisance than a, a danger. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, uh, causes diarrhea, uh, can cause chronic pain. But if people deal with it without limiting their diet, then they can maintain their weight, uh, and they just have to work their way through these uh, painful episodes. We think it's caused by spasm of the musculature in the intestinal tract rather than inflammatory changes that you see with IBD. So that's something that people have to be aware of. I think that's a really, really helpful need- description. I'm so glad you brought that up because they're one letter difference. So I find mm-hmm. a lot of people confuse the two because they're both digestive issues, but thank you for the clarification. Yeah. How common actually is IBD? Um, we don't have exact figures. There's an estimate that roughly uh, about somewhere around um, 10 or so individuals per 100,000 in our population uh, have IBD. Uh, Crohn's disease seems to be a little more uh, prevalent compared with ulcerative colitis, maybe a ratio of 60 to 40. Um, And um, so it's estimated in the United States there's somewhere around one to one and a half million individuals who have inflammatory bowel disease. About 25% of these will present with symptoms uh, during childhood. Um, The most typical age where they present is about 15 to 35 years of age. Um, And, but we still, we see children right down to their first month of life uh, who uh, will present with IBD. Are there any other characteristics that we might expect in a diagnosis of IBD? So for example, sex or uh, certain ethnic backgrounds? Um, Well, let me back up for a second. The most common presentation of inflammatory bowel disease is diarrhea, abdominal pain, and fever. And if you have ulcerative colitis, about 90% of the patients will have red blood uh, coming out. Uh, They'll be bleeding into the toilet. Um, So in a child who has either diarrhea and or abdominal pain and or uh, fevers uh, that are persistent more than a couple of weeks, which is, you know, more, that's more of an acute illness if it's less than a couple of weeks. Um, But if they have signs of chronic disease and symptoms of chronic disease, then uh, inflammatory bowel disease starts uh, getting on the differential list as a potential reason for that. Um, You know, in an individual, whether it's a male or female, you couldn't really distinguish. There are a few, um, if you do large epidemiologic studies, there are a few indications that uh, females are uh, have more of a tendency to get Crohn's disease early, and males later. Um, and um, there, there is a, a higher tendency among Ashkenazic Jews to get inflammatory bowel disease, um, but it can occur in all populations. We see it in African Americans and Asians. Um, 
and uh, both Asian Indian and Asian uh, Chinese um, populations. So um, it it can occur in anybody. One thing that is of interest is that it seems to have a higher uh, prevalence in urban compared with rural populations. So as people move uh, more into cities, then those population groups tend to have higher uh, prevalences of, of IBD. That's so interesting because we find something similar with asthma, eczema, other childhood illnesses, right. and chronic conditions. So that's really mm-hmm. interesting. In fact, uh, you probably are familiar then with the hygiene theory for the immune system, and there are some people who think that that's related to IBD as well. In terms of diagnosis, so you have a child who's had a fever, diarrhea, stomach aches, happening for a couple of weeks. We start to think about IBD. How is it officially diagnosed? So first of all, the physician taking care of a patient needs to have it on that person's mind. Um, In, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I first started, uh, it wasn't as well known. And so uh, the disease was often uh, missed and diagnosis was delayed. And in fact, there are reports, uh, many reports in the 80s of uh, children with Crohn's disease who would go on for two years before they would get diagnosed. And one of the reasons they were diagnosed is um, the child might not be growing that well uh, because of the malnutrition or even just because of the chronic inflammation. And somebody happens to do a stool test to look for blood in the stool and finds it on a what's called a hemocult card where they can look for microscopic blood. And so then they do further evaluation and make the diagnosis. Um, But the diagnosis is made um, initially by doing some screening blood tests to look for evidence of anemia and protein loss in the stool, um, making sure it's not an infection. So you do stool tests to look for infections. Um, And then eventually the diagnosis is made between an imaging study and our uh, go-to now is the is what's called an MRE, an MR enterography, where it's an MR scan where you can look at the lining of the intestinal tract from top to bottom, um, and then doing an upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy, lower endoscopy, uh, and getting biopsies from the different areas throughout the intestinal tract that you can reach with the scopes uh, to make the diagnosis. And there are specific changes we look for on, on under the microscope uh, from these biopsies that help us make the diagnosis. I'm just curious, and you've been treating IBD for many years. Have you seen, how have the treatments evolved? Can you describe the treatment options that are now available for IBD? You know, the treat, treatment advances have been tremendous. When I first started, we had two drugs. We have steroids and sulfasalazine. Um, and there was a third set of drugs that were just coming into being, the uh, thiopurines, which uh, are immunosuppressive type of medication. And so in the early 80s, we were using um, prednisone and, and sulfasalazine to treat patients. Um, over the next few years, Imuran or 6MP, and then... Um, the mesalamine types of drugs came into vogue. These are 
medications that took part of the molecule that we use with sulf- that's, that's part of sulfasalazine, and we were able to then use that as a specific treatment. But still, we had these three classes of medications, steroids, mesalamine, and uh, the thiopurines. <clears throat> In the 90s, uh, the biologic medications started coming, and that made a huge difference for our patients because now we suddenly had medications that could actually um, put patients into complete remission, which we weren't really able to do with the other drugs, not very often, um, and keep them there without side effects. Because if we had to maintain somebody, for example, on prednisone, over time, these patients develop serious adverse um, uh, reactions to it. Uh, thins bones, causes diabetes, has changes on your body, skin, and so on, um, and cataracts. Um, so when we started having the biologic agents, anti-TNF medications, the first one was a drug called infliximab, um, which still is a mainstay of our treatment. Um, we were able to take patients who were really sick and put them in remission. In fact, I remember one patient who had has Crohn's disease. Um, at that time, she was about a 14, 15-year-old girl and had been suffering and not being able to go to school. And I put her on Remicade, and her mom called me up the next day and said, you've cured my kid. I'm stopping everything. I said, don't you dare. If you stop everything, he's going to get sick again. I mean, she didn't understand it. But it was the first time her daughter felt normal in years. That must have been so rewarding for you as a physician to see such an totally. evolution in, in the treatment in your field. Yeah, and, and, and you know, so over the last 25 years, we've uh, now got this whole armamentarian of biologics, and there's these new uh, small molecule medications that are uh, starting to appear, and they're giving us all kinds of new options to treat these, uh, you know, in my case, children. Um and um, with much fewer in the way of side effects compared to the old treatments. So it's a, a tremendous advances. I'm just curious, um, when it comes to the biologics, there are some noted side effects. How often do you, can you describe what they are and how often have you seen them? Just well, more trying to reassure parents that have this, I've had parents that come up with this decision whether or not to start a biologic and they're nervous. Because once you start it, you continue, as you said, for, for life. Yeah, you don't want to stop because the risk is that if you stop and you try to restart, you won't get a patient back in remission. Or even worse, patients will develop an immune reaction to the, new, to the, to the uh, newer drugs. Um, so you need to maintain levels so that they don't develop a reaction to it. Um, but the side effects are so much lower than what we saw with prednisone or um, even Imuran in the past. What parents glom onto, especially when they Google it, is they try to get into some kind of um, food therapy. And there are a number of diets that are being tried or that have been tried. In the late 80s, we knew that if we put patients on elemental formula, we could put them in remission. And I had one uh, teenager who... I love talking about him. He was about six foot four, and he came in to see me, um, and I diagnosed him with Crohn's disease. At the time, he was 
uh, six four, about 120 pounds. So you can imagine how skinny he was. Wow. And he did not want to go on. At that time, I gave him a choice. Like, put your friends on Imran or you can try this diet. He said, I don't want the drugs. I said, great, go on the diet. Here's what you have to drink. There are these elemental formula cans. You need to drink 12 to 14 cans a day to get the calories you need to play basketball. And he did it. He took the cans every single day, gained weight. He went into complete remission. And he had to do that for a month. At the end of a month, I let him start liberalizing his diet. And then every two months, he would do it again. So two months on, two months on a regular diet, then one month on this. Um, and he did that for a few years until um, he eventually went to college. The elemental diet or the formula diet now we know works, but you really have to be committed to it. And it doesn't work in everybody, and it may not necessarily do away with the inflammation in your intestinal tract, even though patients may feel better. And that's important to realize because if you still have ongoing inflammation over time, you can develop complications from it, especially with Crohn's disease. And if you develop complications such as fistulas, which are little uh, tiny tracts, uh, open openings between loops of intestine or even between your intestine and other organs or your intestine and the skin, uh, those get infected and can be dangerous and interfere with all kinds of uh, life, really. I remember my, my husband's best friend was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when he was in medical school, and he tried a special Crohn's diet. And I think he felt better for a little bit, but then eventually we could all see that it wasn't working and he went on the biologics yeah. and now he's much better. And that's a typical story. I mean, I, I think it delays the other treatments and, you know, some parents are going to say, if I can delay treatment for a couple of years and then put, that's two years where my child won't get exposed to drugs. On the other hand, there is a risk that you can get sicker. And I'm just curious, there's a lot of talk about homeopathic options. People talk about probiotics do any of those have any validity in the research you've read in terms of helping with symptomatic IBD? Uh, the quick answer is no. Um, I think there's a lot we still don't know. Uh, there's lots of new research that's coming out now about the microbiome and whether probiotics might be helpful for that. And when you treat patients, how likely is it that they can go into complete remission? Is it possible that well, the disease can stay away? How likely is that? It'll stay away with treatment. I mean, that we see. Um, it doesn't happen in everybody. Uh, our goal is, uh, my goal when we're treating patients is to get patients to be able to lead a, a normal life. Um, so we want our kids to be able to go to school, participate in activities. I always tell our kids our goal is you, you, all our patients are straight A students and go on to college. And I also tell them that if your child or the child themselves, I tell them, if, if you can't participate the way you want to, in other words, you can't go to after-school activities or participate in the track because you like to run track or be a tennis player, whatever it is they want to do, um, let us know because we're going to try to fix your treatment so that you can participate. And, and that's our goal. Uh, we want them to be in the main flow of life. Um, and in fact, um, 
one of the things we do is we have a camp that we've set up for our kids uh, locally uh, in Livermore. And every summer, the kids spend a week there. Uh, it's an overnight camp. You know, we have roughly 100 kids and 40 counselors at the camp, uh, all of whom have IBD. And uh, camp's called Camp Go Beyond. Um, and um, the kids go there and spend a week and uh, learn that they can do everything anybody else does. We have a pool, we have a climbing wall, there's a ropes course. Uh, we have a dance night, a casino night, a, uh, you know, every anything you'd expect at a camp. That's um, amazing. That's amazing. And, so let me ask you about this a little more. What, what are the ages of kids that can attend? Uh, we take kids 7 to 17. The 17-year-olds are counselors in training. And then 18 and up are counselors. And a lot of the counselors now, we've been doing this camp since 2000. 2001 so over 20 years a lot of the counselors are former campers so it's like uh, they're giving back to the new the younger ones and the campers and the counselors share in you know they all take medications uh, some are uh, still taking pills some are getting IV infusions we don't do those very often at camp but we have done them um, some are getting shots once a week so They'll have to get those at camp. We help them with that. Um, and they, and they uh, talk to each other about their treatments. And so there's a lot of positive reinforcement and encouragement and building up of their esteem. If somebody's listening and they know a child who has IBD, can they apply to go to this camp? Absolutely. Um, our camp this year is July 2nd to 7th. Um, we still have some openings. Uh, they can go to www.campgobeyond, all one word, dot com, dot org, sorry, www.campgobeyond.org, uh, and the applications are on the website. That sounds like a great camp. And I'm just curious, um, in terms of the future of IBD treatment, are there any new treatments on the horizon, anything else that we have to look forward to hearing about? The pipeline for new drug development is huge. There's something like 70 drugs out there that are being tested right now for inflammatory bowel disease. There's a lot of uh, new potential treatments that are coming out. For parents that are listening, do you have any advice for families? You know, as someone who's treated kids with IBD and seen them over the years, do you have any advice for parents of children with IBD? How, how can we best support them and their well-being? Well, I think... Um, linking with other families and having their children link with other children who have IBD helps the children feel that they're not alone in the world. That's one thing. I think encouraging the child, the children, uh, to lead normal lives and when they can't to seek assistance is also important. And then, you know, trusting your physicians who are trying to do the best they can to help your uh, children uh, lead normal lives. Thank you so much for this. I think it's so helpful to know that there is really good treatments out there and that the treatments are evolving, getting better all the time, and that there is a good possibility of leading a normal life. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review, wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram 